Steve. Just just one note, if you are new uh, to the church or if you have not been around here very long, um, I do, about the creeds, on the back when we print these in the bulletin, there's a really good uh, couple of paragraphs about the creeds and why we recite them. And also, uh, several of you over time have asked me questions about the creed and um, as Gary, uh, his spiritual gift is the gift of footnotes, he will tell you, <laughs> as, he, as he writes quite a bit. And, and if you notice on the, on the creeds that we say, often uh, there is a footnote that helps explain uh, some of that. And so if, if you ever wonder, uh, those are two things, two really good things to read um, to help clarify some of those thoughts. Um, today, uh, we're going to continue... Uh, through the book of Romans, our, our study through the book of Romans, and we've been in the book of Romans for several years. Um, I think it's fitting this morning that we come to um, this part of Romans chapter 11. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about pride, and uh, many of you, Alabama fans, Clemson fans, uh, West Virginia fans, need to hear this message this morning. You need to be humbled to the core. <laughs> no, uh, but today we are going to talk about pride. And, and one of the things, this is not going to be an exhaustive sermon about pride. In fact, um, if we were going to do that, that would be a sermon series um, about pride. Thinking about, looking at what the Bible says about pride is so important. We're not going to get into all of it this morning. It's not going to be exhaustive. But in the beginning, I do want to say... Because uh, I want us to have in our minds uh, that there are two sides to pride. One of the sides of pride we often know and we get, right? Um, it's, it's the pride that the Alabama fans are feeling this morning, that they're better than everybody else. You know, that needs to be put to death. But that's the normal sense of the word pride that we think about, right? Uh, of, of thinking highly of ourselves. The other side of pride that we oftentimes don't think about is the pride that often creeps in in the midst of depression or the midst of sadness. You see, pain, pain has a really interesting way in our life of drawing us inward so that the only thing that we can think about is what? Our self, our pain, our suffering. Now, now when, we, when we talk with someone who's going through pain and suffering... We don't come at them, you, you know, when, you, when you're talking to somebody who's the other side of pride, I'm better than everybody else, many times in order to confront that, we're confronting that in a, in a hard manner. This side of pride, we don't come in with a, with a hard fist. We don't come in, you know, harshly, but we come in lovingly and point them to a Savior, point them to something that's bigger than what they are, and let that abolish that sense of pride as well. So there is two sides of pride. Now this morning, this morning, uh, Paul is going to talk about um, pride when it comes to Gentiles. Paul is aware, he is at least nervous about, because he brings this up in several occasions, he's worried that the Gentile believers in the church at Rome may become prideful. And if you've been with us through our study, if you've been with us through our study, when we started Romans chapters 9 through 11, you know, one of the things that we said in Romans 9, 6, Paul is answering the question, has God's word failed? And if you've been with us, you know that he's asking that because the Israelites were rejecting the Messiah. And so God is asking, or Paul is asking the question, He's assuming that there would be a question, has God's word failed? And he says, no. And last week, or the last time we looked in uh, the book of Romans, we see that salvation history, it's that salvation came to the Jews. The Jews rejected the Messiah. The Gentiles have come in. And then at some future point, there will be a mass revival among Israelites. And so this is this salvation history of Jews, Gentiles, Jews. And so one of the things that Paul is saying in this letter to the church at Rome, as Gentiles are flooding into the church, is that Paul is saying, hey, listen, watch yourselves. Don't become prideful. And so we're going to get into that 
in, in a little bit. But one of the things that I just want to, uh, to say right off the bat is that pride is a major problem. In fact, I would argue that the root of all sin in our life comes from pride. If you think about it, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God created man and woman. Uh, God said, you can enjoy the garden. God set up an order of God uh, as king and uh, above all and man. And then man was in charge of creation. And do you remember what the serpent said to Eve that enticed her away? Did God not say? And remember what it was in Eve? The serpent said, you can be like God. You see the pride in that statement? The pride in that statement of of turning away and the sin and it upset the order of everything. And and then in the Old Testament, as God is making things right and God is um, resetting the order, as God is working out the plan of redemption, a way for man um, to come back to God, that God, as He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. Let's get the order right. And then as Christ comes and uh, dies on the cross, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and, uh, and we know that that's the fulfillment of that promise, that those who put their faith and trust in Him uh, can have a relationship with God. That order is restored. But remember when Christ was walking the face of the earth, and they questioned Jesus, they, and they asked Him, what is the greatest commandment? What is it that Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. In many ways, what what Jesus was saying there, and what God has always said to this is, know where you fit in. Because the temptation that is in us, and the temptation that has always been in us, is to think of ourselves too highly than we ought. And when we do that, life becomes a mess. Life becomes disordered. And and life is not what it was supposed to be. And then we make a mess and a shipwreck out of our life. And I would say that all sin stems from our inability from our inability to notice the pride in ourselves and to function properly. It's the inability to submit ourselves under the Word of God, under the sovereignty of God, and to act joyfully as servants of God our King, and instead we want to dictate to God how we think our lives would work best, and we violate His commandments, we turn our back on Him, and we try to do life our own way. This is a major problem. And you can see how we could spend tons of time here. Our text this morning, our text this morning, Paul is warning the Gentiles not to become prideful. And in verse 16, he starts with two metaphors. And the second metaphor he, he, he uses all throughout, all the way to verse 24. We're only going to look at to verse 22 today. Uh, and, and within this section, he gives us three reasons um, why we should not be prideful or why the Gentiles should not be prideful. And I think there's application to us as we look at that. But first, in order to understand this text, we have to understand the metaphor. So let's look at verse 16. And there's two metaphors that he uses here. And they're both, uh, he uses two metaphors to say the same thing. So in verse 16, he says, If the first piece of dough is holy, or, or some of your translations rightly say, if the first fruits of the dough is holy, then the lump is also. This goes back to Old Testament imagery. Uh, where uh, the people were supposed to give a, a portion, the first fruits of, of the harvest uh, to the Lord. And what this is saying is simply this, is that when God accepts the first fruits of the harvest, it means that the rest of it is consecrated or the rest of it is thought of as holy. Do we understand that? 
So, so that when they came and gave the sacrifice, if it was acceptable, if it was part of the first fruits and, and it was blessed, then it meant the rest of the harvest or the, the rest of whatever was being given to the Lord was seen as consecrated, set apart, or holy. Paul is saying here, in the same way, in the same way, if the root is holy, then the branches are too. In other words, you have a tree, and if the roots are set apart and consecrated as holy, then the branches, which are the furthest thing from the root, are as well. So that's, the, that's what Paul is saying. And then what Paul does is he uses this metaphor of a tree and branches and roots to, to push forward um, his subject and to deal with Gentile pride. And so what I want to do is as we look at the metaphor of the tree, I want to talk about um, three parts of the tree mentioned here. We're going to have a picture. Spate, can you put the picture up of an olive tree? Because what I want you to have in your mind is, is what Paul is talking about. This is an olive tree. And um, so what Paul does is he's using, he's talking about different parts of this tree to push forward his purpose. Now, a word of caution. Portions of Scripture like this, there have been commentators that take these wild, wild rides. Because they take this metaphor that Paul is using and they start talking about photosynthesis and they start talking about this kind of olive versus that kind of olive. And I, Paul is not doing any of that. Paul has a very simple message for us and so I want to stay within the confines of, of, of the Bible. Paul was not a master gardener. And I want to stay within the confines of the Bible. And I, want to, I first want to show what is this metaphor, what are the different parts, and then we're going to see if we get that, if we understand that, we're going to understand how it is that Paul, the, the warnings that he gives uh, to the Gentiles about being prideful. For the first thing, first thing that I want you to see is... Uh, in this metaphor, as Paul is describing this, that we, we have to understand what the tree is. And the tree, we could have several different names for that. One thing we could say is the tree is the, the family of God. Another way we could talk about it is um, the tree is the, the true church. Those who are believers, the, the true church. Another way we could uh, say this is that the tree is spiritual Israel. And you say, well, Lewis, where do you get that? And we're going to be jumping around to, to two places today quite a bit, but I, I'll read for you. In, in chapter 9 of Romans, verses 6 and 7, notice this. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. In other words, what Paul, as we saw when we were in Romans chapter 9, is saying that the, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, are those who have faith in Jesus. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, we have over and over in the book of Galatians uh, examples of this, but in Galatians 3 verses 8 and 9, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, all those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Another kind of example of when we see and when we look at this tree, what it's talking about is true Israel. Now, where the book of Romans, another place in the book of Romans where things get confusing is that sometimes when Paul is talking in the book of Romans about Israel, he's talking about ethnic Israel. At other times, he's talking about spiritual Israel. And in this passage, he's talking about both. But I think if we read it and put our thinking caps on, we can understand uh, what he's saying. So, so the picture is the tree and... Um, in, in distinguishing uh, between ethnic and spiritual Israel. And so that's what we have. The tree, the tree as a, as a total there, is the church or spiritual Israel or the children of the promise or whatever words you want to put on there. The second thing that our text 
talks about over and over again are the branches. And, and our text says that there are two branches that are in this tree. The first um, that I want to talk about is ethnic Israel. Look in verse 21. It says, For God did not spare the natural branches. When it talks about natural branches, he's talking about ethnic Israel. And there's another branch that he talks about, and that is the Gentile believers, and that's in verse 17, and that describes most of us. And that is, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive or a wild branch, were grafted in among them, became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And so in this tree, as you see back here, I'm looking at the tree up here, but as you see, there are branches. What Paul is saying is that the true church, the true Israel, the family of God is made up of both ethnic Israel and Gentiles. And the good news for all of us is that we all fit into one of those categories. (laughs) So Paul, as he's talking about race relations within the church, he looks at the church and says the church is a multicultural, multi-race entity, and the branches are proof of that. Thirdly, thirdly, the root, and this is very important, and this is the place where I think sometimes we, we want to jump to assumptions, but I, I think it's important that we look at the context and see, what is Paul talking about when he talks about the root The root. What is the root to this tree? What's the metaphor? Look in verses 16 and 18. It says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now remember, remember what Paul is talking about. And the parallel here is the first fruits. So there is something that has been set aside and consecrated as holy that makes this the root and makes the rest of the tree holy. Let's look again within the context. Let's look at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now, I think there are are, are many things things that we could say. I think there are many guesses at what in the world is Paul talking about, the root, that that actually makes sense. But I think if we look in context, that the key to unpacking what this verse means, what these verses mean, what is the root here in the metaphor is verse 28. It's amazing how many times if you keep reading in the Bible, it answers the question for you. Notice in verse 28, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Listen as Paul writes to the church in Galatia. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then Romans chapter 9, if we were to go back there, it talks about the patriarchs. And so what is clear, I think, in context here, in context of Romans, and in the context of the New Testament, is that when Paul is talking about the roots in this metaphor, what he's talking about are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you may say, well, Lewis... Doesn't it make more sense if it's Jesus or if it's God's Word or this? And what Paul is alluding to that his readers would completely understand is that the way that God has worked in salvation history is that God has set aside Abraham and the patriarchs and He consecrated them as holy. And He said, I, I, I'm promising you, I will be your God. I will provide a way. And it's through the patriarchs that we get Jesus. That God has provided a way. And so when Paul is talking about this tree in this passage, what he's talking about are the the, the patriarchs, the church fathers. And and this is what Romans 9 through 11 is really all about in many ways, is that you have ethnic Israel, you have Gentiles, and the Gentiles are being brought into the faith 
of the ethnic Jews and being created in one family to have a relationship with God, a people who were far off, a people who were aliens, a people who had no birthright claim to these promises, and they were being brought into this promise that God made with Abraham. And oh yeah, by the way, when God made the promise to Abraham, God said that through you I will bless all nations. So do we understand the metaphor? <laughs> we understand the metaphor. Okay. Okay. So, what we want to look at now, what we want to look at now is that Paul, Paul here is going to um, lean in and make sure that the Gentiles, because they are rushing in, they're accepting the gospel and the Jewish people aren't, that he's wanting to make sure that there's no sense of pride and nationalism in them that would lead uh, to, to a sinful life. And, and the first thing that I want you to see before we look at the three, um, the three distinct reasons why Gentiles shouldn't have pride is that Paul was worried about this with himself. Have you ever wondered why in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to salvation, what comes next? To the Jew first. Paul, and his apostle to the Gentiles, and as he was going to Spain uh, to, to be... To, to witness to the Gentiles in Spain, he wanted to make sure that the readers of this letter did not get the wrong idea about him. Also, in Romans chapter 9, we see Paul's anguish, Paul, the, the emotion uh, over the, the Jews rejecting the Messiah. And, and in chapter 10, we see that as well. Paul goes through painstaking detail to let us know that there is no hint of Gentile nationalistic pride in him, Paul being a Jew, but that he is very concerned about the state of the Jewish believer. And so as Paul writes these words, he has, the whole time through this letter, trying to convince us that, hey, this is, this is something that I'm concerned about. So, what I want to look at now, and if we look at this text, it's really great for a pastor because it gives us three, Paul gives us three reasons why the Gentiles should not and cannot be prideful. Uh, and I know that none of us in here probably woke up this morning struggling with uh, the fact, struggling with, the, with pride because the fact that you're a Gentile and your Jewish neighbor is not believing, you know. Um, I would hope that that wouldn't be our struggle. You know, we, one of the ways to talk about this would talk about, be to talk about uh, anti-Semitism and how that is wrong and, and horrific and hateful. Um, but I would assume that's not where most of us are. And so as we read this, what I don't want you to do is to turn your brain off and think about the barbecue tomorrow. But what I want you to do is to say, this is not an exhaustive list of how to overcome pride in your life, but all three of these things that Paul points out to these Gentiles about the temptation to be prideful over the fact that they're coming in and the Jewish people aren't. All three of these things can really help us in our struggle against pride. So I want us to listen in and I want us to glean from Paul uh, these reasons uh, why we cannot be prideful. And the first one we see uh, is in verses 17 through 18. L listen to the logic here. But if some of the branches, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports the you. And so the very first thing that Paul is saying here to the Gentile believers is know your place. As you have been brought into the family of God, it is not you who are supporting the roots. In other words, there's nothing that the branches are doing to support the roots, but it's the roots of this tree that's supporting the branches. The patriarchs, the first fruits, 
They're the ones that were set apart as holy. They're the ones that received the promises. They're the ones through whom came Jesus. And it is through these roots, through these Jewish roots, that you Gentiles are being supported and that you Gentiles are being, you're being grafted into this. And so how dare you have a sense of pride because you add nothing to the tree? John 4.22, Jesus, when He's talking to the Samaritan woman, says, salvation is from the Jews. Uh, again, in Romans 4, I won't go there, but we have Paul talking about our salvation, our standing as Gentiles that were being grafted in to Abraham over and over and over. It is, it, it, it is these promises that supports us. Now, let me get real practical here. This is what God does not do. God does not look at the church, the family of God that He's established. He doesn't look at this structure that you're seeing on this. I've got to stop pointing this way. This structure and to say, Whew, man, this thing's in trouble. We better find us some branches to put in here so this thing doesn't fall over. We must be careful not to think of ourselves too highly than we ought because when God brings us individually to salvation, He doesn't look down from heaven and say, man, I am really struggling here. What I really need is Lewis. That is not what happens. That is not the condition of on which God saves you. It's not the condition on which God saves me. God does not need us. No, we are brought into the family of God and we are fed and we are sustained by God's grace. One of the most horrific sermons I've ever heard and I will not name the pastor, um, but I will uh, use it as an illustration because I think it was that horrific. And the title of the sermon was God Can't Do It Without You. And I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it here again. And, and the, the, the message of the sermon was this, that God cannot act in physical time and space. God is above time and space and cannot act in physical time and space. And so, from the very beginning, He has needed people to push back against Satan and to accomplish His purposes in the world. Therefore, God needs you. I, I wanted to throw my phone as I was listening to this sermon. If God needs Lewis, God's in trouble. Right? Absolutely, amen. The very thing that makes God God is that He doesn't need anything. That's the very definition of what makes God God. And so what you see when we think about this rightly, when we go back to creation, when we go back to how God ordered things, it's this. There is no room for pride or boasting in the life of Lewis because I bring nothing to the table when it comes to my salvation. I bring nothing to the table when it comes to my standing before God. The only thing that I bring to the table is my need. And that's my need for a Savior. And God does that. God has provided that. So that's the first thing. That, that we do not support the root, the root supports the Gentiles, the root supports us. The second thing we see in verses 19 through 20. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Quite right. So this is a true statement. Branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. We looked at that last time we were in the book of Romans, that, the, that, that part of 
part of what was going on in salvation history is that the Jews were, were rejecting the Messiah and that therefore the Gentiles were, were being let in. So he says, quite right. They were broken off. Notice this. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. And so what we see here is the other reason why the Gentiles cannot be prideful is because their standing before God is only based on faith. So what Paul is saying here is your ethnicity being a Gentile gives you no standing before God. That in fact, when we read this logic, what he says is that the branches that were lopped off, they're lopped off because of what? Unbelief. The branches that were being grafted in are being grafted in based on what? Faith. Do you see why that logic would tell us that there's no pride, there's no standing on pride? Because there's nothing that you or I, the Gentile believer, brings to the table except what we have heard over and over and over through Romans, and that is faith. We are justified by faith. It's not about ethnicity. So entrance into the tree, tree, into the family of God is by grace. It's a gift. It's mercy. And, and you've heard this saying. If you haven't heard this saying, it's one that you need to, to take and to think about quite often is that there is no boasting at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, there is no boasting. What is meant by that? In fact, Paul says our only boasting is in what? The cross and the cross of Christ. And so at the foot of the cross, when, we're, when we see the cross for what it is, what we see is that I, Lewis, am a hopeless, helpless sinner. And I'm standing before a righteous God and there is nothing in me. There's not ethnicity. There's not works. There's nothing I can do to have a relationship with God. And I'm allowed entrance into a relationship with God based on one thing, and that's the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the foot of the cross, if I truly understand what that means, when I am at the foot of the cross, there is absolutely no boasting there. That our boast, our standing, is solely in the grace of God, that He would send His Son Jesus to die in my place. I brought the hymnal that I have in my office up here because I couldn't think of a better way to illustrate this than the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Think about these words that we sing often. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then anew, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Brothers and sisters, I deserve hell. I get grace because of his mercy. Don't be conceited. Your standing before God is based on nothing except for the blood of of Jesus and His grace. Thirdly, and you thought we were going to get through this without controversy in Romans chapter 11, but thirdly, uh, there's two pieces of controversy here, and I want to, uh, again, this will not be an exhaustive study on either one of these topics, but uh, I want you to see what Paul is saying, and then I do want to speak to both of these controversies. The third thing we see um, is in, starts in verse 20 and then runs through 22. The other reason why Gentiles should not be prideful. 
Notice at the end of verse 20, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God, and, and sometimes when we think of fear, we're going to talk about fear. Is it, is it proper to have fear in a Christian life? We're going to talk about that in a second. Sometimes when we think about fear in a, in a Christian's life, we're conditioned to think about, and there, there are many good things written about, fear in terms of reverence and awe, and that's not a bad way to think about it. But listen to this. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, remember He lopped them off, He will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. So, we see that the, our proper view of God, a view of His kindness and severity, that fear keeps us from being prideful. So this brings up two questions. Number one, is there a place for fear in the Christian's life? Number two, what about eternal security? So we are, in ten minutes, going to tackle both of those. So let's, let's jump in and dig in here. So the first is, is this, and the, is to, let's talk about fear. And, and this isn't the only place in the New Testament where fear is talked about. In 1 Corinthians 10.12, it says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed or fear lest he falls. Later in that same uh, in that same chapter, the next verse, he says this, There is no temptation that has come to man which can't be overcome because God is faithful. So he's saying fear, and then he's saying, hey, don't fear. In the book of Hebrews, we will turn to this one, or I'll turn to this one for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not unified, united by faith to those who heard. For we, so notice fear, but then he says, but we, for we, have entered the rest, just as he said. And he uh, I'll read the rest of it. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So what in the world is going on here? If I were to just start talking about fear, you all would quote Bible verses to me like this. God is love. You would also maybe say something like this. Perfect love cast out all fear. So what in the world is going on? What about in this same chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, you haven't received a spirit of what? Slavery that falls back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. What in the world is going on? And so I want to ask the question, is fear a proper motivation against pride? So, two things, real quickly. Where does fear come from? Fear comes from a proper understanding of God being holy and just and a proper understanding of you being a sinner who cannot be holy and who cannot live up to the standards from which you could escape God's wrath. That is where fear should come from. There is nothing scarier more fear-producing in this world than a knowledge about who God is and a knowledge about who you are. Do we understand that? And so when we see that, when we see that juxtaposition, what happens is, is that we fear. Real fear is getting what you deserve. And so what happens here, what's happening here, is that if we lean on our own merit, in this case, ethnicity, good works, you should fear. If that is what you think gives you a right standing before God, the 
greatest thing to happen is that you should be afraid. But what I want you to see in the life of a believer, I think over and over again, we see that there is in the Bible, we see there is a purpose for fear. And here's where it is. Notice this. For a believer, when we feel or when we see that fear, what should be the very next thing that happens? We should be reminded of God's love and His grace towards us. And when this happens in a believer's life, when, we, when that fear, when we see that fear, when we see our sinfulness, when we think about God as a holy and just God, fear leads us into the kindness of God. Do you understand that? Do you see that picture? It was all in the prayer that Steve read this morning. For a believer, fear propels us into thinking about grace. It propels us into thinking about mercy. And if that's not what happens, then we have to look and see if you're a Christian. Because the fear remains if we're not in that relationship with Jesus. I want to read you a quote, uh, and I lost who said this. It wasn't a dead guy. It was some pastor that's not dead. I think. It wasn't an old dead guy, anyways. He says, talking about fear, therefore the problem is not so much a disagreement between the authors of the New Testament books, but rather the problem is how the same author can say on one hand, fear, and on the other hand, have no fear, be confident. The solution will, I think, be found in the suggestion that a sober fear of God will motivate us to trust His mercy shown in Christ, and this trembling trust will then gradually remove the fear that drove us to it as we see more clearly what our Lord has done for us. And so what I think we see, and again, we could have a whole sermon series on this, but I just wanted to briefly tackle this topic is that fear in the life of a believer leads to knowing and being foundationally firm in the love of God. And what Paul is saying to the hearers is, of this, of the Gentiles, if you are prideful and if you are standing in your own merit as an ethnic Gentile, you need to be fearful because there is no standing before God in that. Secondly, um, secondly, um, the second objection to, in this passage is, does this passage mean um, don't be prideful because you can lose your salvation? And, and I want to real quickly say two things. There is an immediate kind of easy answer to this here, but I don't want to just totally leave that subject. What's going on in this text? Remember, when Paul is talking about the branches in this passage, when Paul's talking about branches, he's talking about groups of people. And so what Paul is telling the Gentile believers as a group of people, listen, don't get prideful, because if you get prideful, like the Jews did, there is nothing stopping God from shutting salvation to the Gentiles. Do we understand that? So in this passage, it kind of becomes an easy solution to... Can you lose your salvation? No, that's not necessarily what Paul's talking about here. But that's the chicken way out, right, when discussing can you lose your salvation. And so I just want to briefly, briefly ask the question, is there a purpose for warning passages in the Bible? Um, there are many passages in the Bible that talk about that those who, what will be saved? Those who endure till the end will be saved. Uh, on top of that, uh, there are many security passages in this chapter. So think about this in this chapter, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Um, furthermore, one of my favorite passages when it comes to the security of salvation, two of my favorite passages are Romans 8, the golden chain. Those who are called are. That there's this, there's this, there's this thread that runs through that 
that really when we look at Romans 8, we see the security of the believer. Another one of my favorite ones is Jude, verse 24. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. And, and that talks about that to Him, to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling, that He will keep His own. So there are many passages there. And so what we have to ask is, so what in the world is going on here and in the Bible where it sure seems like that God is saying, be fearful lest you don't endure. Be fearful lest you um, somehow lose your salvation. And one of the things that, uh, that, that I want to say to this is two things. One... What I think is pretty clear from the Bible, and again, this isn't the time to have an exhaustive study of this, but I think it's clear if we go to the Bible and we look at all the passages, one of the things that I think is clear to see is that those who, who go away from the faith and, and they, they perish without ever coming back to the faith, that it's clear that the Bible says they go out from us because why? They were never of us. And so it's clear, those examples of folks that we know that abandon and leave the faith, that what the Bible would tell us is that that person was never truly saved in the first place. The second thing, the second thing here is this, and this, this means a lot in my life. I, I, we ask the question, then why are these warning passages in the Bible? One is to kind of purify the church so that we know that those who are drifting away um, church discipline uh, is, is put in for this, that those who are drifting away, those who are going off the reservation, that we are to be witnessing to them. We are to be talking to them as unbelievers, you know, if they go away from the church. The other thing is this, is that I believe that what the Bible does over and over again, and I have, I've said this to you all, is that it gives us guardrails. And so you think about the image I have in my mind, the metaphor in my mind, is that you're going up a mountain, and on both sides of the mountain are sheer cliff drop-offs into total destruction. And that what God does with the Bible, He gives us guardrails, and He gives us those little vibration strips. That And so what happens when we read this passage, if we're prideful, and we read passages about pride, what should happen is what, we should, what the Holy Spirit does is it gives us that... And it says, you better get over in your lane. If you continue in this, it's a sign that you're not a believer and you're going towards the destruction that is there for you. But as believers, when we hear this word, if the Spirit of God is in us, then we respond to this word and we come over. Now, don't hear me wrong. Some of us, Lewis, have very banged up cars that ride on that guardrail for way too long. And many times in my own life, I think, man, what an idiot. Because I just, I put up with the clamoring of that noise and just boom, 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 banging against that guardrail. And God has to sometimes really do things in life to get my attention to say, hey, get over here. <laughs> this is what's best for you. This is how I've ordered life for you. And so the warning passages in the Bible, the warning passages in the Bible are given to us not so that we can pridefully look at them and say, hey, I don't have pride, I'm doing pretty well. But the warning passages in the Bible are given to us because we are prideful, because we do think we know how to do things our way, because we do rebel against the Word of God, and God graciously gives us these warning passages to get us back in line. It's not unlike what I bet I've said a million times this week to my daughter. Flannery? Just today she was running outside because she wanted to walk around the church with the teenagers. I said, no. She starts out the door. Flannery, if you go out that door, I'm going to spank you. <laughs> Get back in your lane. <laughs> Here's what's best for you. So, briefly wanted to touch on that. Now, to end, to end, Pride has no place in the life of the believer, but until we are home in glory, we will struggle with pride. And so just real quickly, real quickly, 
I want to go back to something Gary said about spiritual growth, and he said it a hundred times, and it's really important, and we need to we need to understand and we get it, is that this. One of the ways, the way to abolish pride in your life is to always recognize that it is the Word of God that stands above us. So if my lifestyle and the Word of God conflict, what's right? The Word of God. And as a believer, as a child of God, I have to humble myself under the Word of God and take my rightful position, not stand over the text and dictate to God what He really means by His Word. That's not my position. The other thing is the Spirit of God inside of us. And one of the roles of the Spirit of God inside of us is to convict us of sin. And one of the places that Satan lures us into these awful lifestyles is that we spend time trying to justify our sin and trying to quench the Spirit in our life because we don't like what the Spirit is saying to us. And brothers and sisters, we are given the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. And so if you are not praying, God, through your Spirit, convict me of sin in my life, you're going to be hitting up against that guardrail. Lastly, most controversially, is the people of God around us Do you have someone in your life that loves you enough to tell you when you're bellyaching, when you're grumbling, when you're boasting, when you're complaining, this might be a pride problem? Do you have somebody that loves you enough that you trust that will look at your motives in doing things and say, brother... If we're not functioning in that way, we are headed for a life of pride and a life beating against a guardrail, and we are not to live that way. So, so let's end. <laughs> I could keep going on, but let's end. The role of us as fathers in this church is to parent the pride out of our children. The role of mothers is to help parent the pride out of our, ch- our children. The role of a husband is to lowly, submissively lead our wives, not from a place of pride and haughtiness, but from a place of lowliness under God to do that. The place of our wife is to submit to that authority. The, the place of us as people and individuals is to submit to the authority of God. The thing for you as children is to submit to your parents. And in Romans, the rest of Romans, we're going to look at exceptions to that. But the major problem that the church of God has is a pride problem that makes us unwilling to submit to God's word and to God's structures. And brothers and sisters, if we are to be the church, we know who supports us. We know how we got there. And we understand that what happens if we don't live like we're called to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm so thankful for this passage. God, I know that it is difficult and it's difficult to talk about things like fear. We touched on some difficult subjects. But God, I pray, Lord, this morning that you would take this word and that you would pull out any... um, Anything in us that is prideful, anything in us that would lead us to um, boast in anything but the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. And that you would help us to overcome that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This last song is not going to be on the screen, so you're going to need to grab a hymn book.